Welcome to New Books in Islamic Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Asad, one of the co-hosts of the channel and your host for our conversation today. Our guest today is Martin Wynn, and we'll be talking about his latest book, Modern Muslim Theology, Engaging God and the World with Faith and Imagination. Martin Wynn is Associate Professor of Religious Studies, Faculty Chair for Inclusive Excellence, and Director of Islamic Studies at Fairfield University. His work revolves around Islamic theology and ethics, the Quran and its interpretation, Sufism, and the intersection of race and religion. He serves on the boards of the Society for the Study of Muslim Ethics and the Wabash Center Journal on Teaching. He is the author of the book, Sufi Master and Quran Scholar, Abul Qasim Al-Qushayri and the Lita'if Al-Isharat, published by Oxford University Press in 2012, which explores the confluence of Sufism, theology, and Quranic hermeneutics in the life and works of an 11th century mystic and scholar. His latest book, Modern Muslim Theology, Engaging God in the World with Faith and Imagination, published by Roman and Littlefield in 2018, presents a contemporary theology rooted in the practice of the religious imagination, and also constitutes the topic of our discussion today. Without further ado, I now welcome Martin Wynn to our podcast. Welcome, Martin. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to have you, Martin. And as you may know, as part of our tradition here at the network, and I use the word tradition here very consciously, knowing that we're going to explore that word in this episode, we like to begin all of our discussions with a brief biographical sketch of our guests. So would you be able to share a little bit about your intellectual journey? Uh, What led you to writing this book and what brought you to modern Muslim theology? Of course, Um, it's always difficult to figure out where to begin that story. But um, perhaps the most immediate starting point is thinking about the book that came before this. Um, that book, which you just mentioned, Sufi Master and Quran Scholar, um, was my dissertation. I, I spent years developing that work. It was uh, work produced during my graduate um, program, and which I then transformed into my first monograph. And while I think that book is important and scholarship of that uh, variety is, is significant to expanding the field of Islamic studies, uh, I realized that work was written for a very small audience, but that it makes concrete contributions to the study of religion, to the study of Islam, the study of tafsir. And yet, when I thought about my own community of faith, when I thought about Muslim communities uh, in which I was engaged with, in which I was involved, um, that work, you know, while it may have some sort of you know, um, narrow contribution to be had, wasn't the type of work that addressed the needs that I saw within my own uh, community of faith. And I think that, combined with my own kind of uh, formation education, led me to to reconsider the trajectory of my writing, uh, which led to modern Muslim theology. Um, I've been part of you know many interfaith engagements. I did my training at Harvard Divinity School, at least for the masters, and it's really within those streams that came to encounter theological academic work, where you had you know Christians and Jews uh, taking up scholarship that was trying to answer the pressing questions and issues of their day, right? Or trying to address the concerns of their particular communities. And while I think that is certainly happening uh, within Muslim communities, there's a great deal more to be done. And I felt that, you know, given what we do in academia, there's there's something to be said about academic theology, right? And so uh, this book, Modern Muslim Theology, was my attempt to try to address the concerns that are facing contemporary Muslims now in a way that is rigorous and yet accessible, uh, meaningful and deep, uh, and yet not somehow um, issuing from an ivory tower, that it uses language, it uses concepts, it uses methods um, that that everyday Muslims can connect with. 
Well, thank you for that. I think academic theology is the perfect transition point to the next question, which is about the book itself. And I'd like to begin with the title because there's a lot to unpack from it right off the bat. Just to repeat it for our listeners, it's Modern Muslim Theology, Engaging God and the World with Faith and Imagination. So let's start with theology. You write that, quote, theology is more than merely an intellectual enterprise. I am not using the word theology as a substitute or translation for an Arabic term like aqida, which means creed, ilm al-kalam, which means scholastic theology, or usul al-din, which means foundational principles of the religion. Though these important fields of religious inquiry invariably favor into the conversation. For the present, I will simply say that theology, if it is truly to be theology, must attend to the fostering of faith, end quote. So my question is three-pronged, and it's a question you ask you know, yourself in, in the book, uh, a series of questions that you ask yourself in the book. Number one, why theology at all? What is, quote-unquote, Muslim theology? And what, then, is a Muslim theology of engagement? So the choice of the word theology is kind of the defining concept for this particular piece of scholarship, for this, for this work. Um, was a fraught one. I, I faced some pushback. Um, I had to wrestle with with the choice of the term myself. Um, but I'll first say that I chose theology because I thought it was an encompassing term. I mean, theology within the English language, right? It literally means an account of of, of transcendence of of God, um, and at least from a Muslim point of view, represents uh, a field of real, genuine inquiry, an inquiry fueled by faith, right? What do what do Muslims think? What do Muslims do uh, when confronted with a reality that is ordained by God? What does that look like? Um, but the term theology, I think, is sometimes perceived as a holdover, a carryover, rather, right? Something that's smuggled in from the Christian realm. That well, why aren't you using terms that are more um, grounded within the Islamic tradition? And one of the points that I make early on in the text, right, is that Islam has spread to many different corners. Um, and in its spread, in its um, movement into different regions and cultures and, and social settings, it's adopted and adapted to what we find on the ground. I think um, Islam's uh, adaptation, uh, co-optation of uh, the Hellenic philosophical tradition, you know, ancient Greek philosophy, into its modes of thinking um, was an important and pivotal a moment within Islamic history. And wherever Islam has gone, it's found ways of finding new forms of expression, right? That the core elements of the faith are there, and yet it's finding new ways of, of making itself relevant and articulate to its, its growing populations. And so the point that I make uh, in one of the early sections of chapter one is that Islam has come to the English-speaking world, that within the Anglophone Muslim communities that we see today, um, the Islam that is practiced is one that is performed in English. It's inflected by, by Quranic Arabic, right? The Arabic still has a place. And yet when we talk about what it means to believe, when we talk about what it means to be a, um, a committed individual within our communities, we're using our, our, our local parlances. And so I wanted to say that, you know, using English terminology and English concepts, that's what predominates. I would argue, within Anglophone Muslim communities. And so theology, I think, is important to have, right? That, yes, it may have etymological roots, conceptual roots right, within the Christian tradition, and yet Muslims are making making it their own, right, in their own ways as time goes on, which gets to the Muslim theology bit. Because another kind of internal debate I had is what do we call this? Because I think Islamic theology is another alternative, and yet Islamic theology brings up this term Islam as a category, as, as kind of this normative orthodoxy to which all things must um, fall under, right? That Islam, to say something that is, is Islamic is that 
conforms to this higher order um, classification. But when you turn turn it and, and focus on the Muslim, the emphasis is now on the agency of believers themselves. What are Muslims actually producing? What are they thinking about when they're trying to think about their nature of their faith? And so I use Muslim theology to kind of center the humanness of this particular endeavor. That whenever whenever communities are trying to come to terms with questions of faith, it's it's all about their interpretation, their enactment, their embodiment of that particular pursuit. And I focus on engagement, right? I tack that on um, because I don't see theology as a purely cerebral exercise. I think too often we think of theology as this, this arcane scholastic endeavor that requires a high threshold of expertise and excellence when you know, at the heart of it, what theology is, is something much more fundamental. It's much more accessible. It's about faith. Um, and when you put it in that way, you know, the expression of faith isn't purely about what we maintain in our minds or hearts. It's what we embody in the world. It's actually what we do. It's how we conduct ourselves. And so I think that aspect of engagement um, helps convey that particular uh, register of meaning. And I'll say also that when I talk about theology, I try to provide a definition. And the core definition of theology, in my mind, is that it represents our human response to God, that God has revelation. He has shown us how we should pursue our particular path of faith. And theology represents our attempt to conform, to understand, to live up to what we think God is telling us. So the next thing I'd like to discuss is, is your, your, <clears throat> your discourse on time and how we conceptualize it in modernity. Right. I, I like that you drew from the historian Richard Bullitt's concepts of domesticity and post-domesticity to make your point. Right. And just, just for our listeners, um, Richard Bullitt writes that domesticity refers to the social, economic, and intellectual characteristics of communities in which most members consider daily contacts with domestic animals other than pets a normal condition of life. Whereas post-domesticity refers to living far away, both physically and psychologically, from the animals that produce the food, fiber, and hides they depend on. And it also, it also refers to not being able to witness the births, the sexual congress, and slaughter of these animals. Yet, at the same time, uh, human beings in a post-domestic society maintain very close relationships with companion animals, such as pets, often relating to them as if they were human. Um, a post-domestic society also continues to consume animal products in abundance, be, uh, quote, but psychologically, its members experience feelings of guilt, shame, and disgust when they think as seldom as possible about the industrial processes by which domestic animals are rendered into products and how these products come into the market. And so now, as I was reading this, you know, this, uh, I thought that there's something about being disembodied and disconnected from the processes that shape our very modes of living while being thoroughly enmeshed in their consequences nonetheless, you know, from the clothing we wear to the food we consume to the means by which we purchase our products via the internet uh, and more. It feels definitive of modernity and the modern condition. And all of this is done as a way to tame or to domesticate our very selves in a way. How does the transition from domesticity to post-domesticity come to bear on how we conceptualize time and what have we gained in this modern conception of time and what have we lost? And where does theology come into play here? Well, I think um, one of the hallmarks of, of our transition into post-domesticity vis-a-vis uh, -vis time is that we've come to look at time as a type of commodity, something that's quantifiable, right? That, we, that it's a unit and it's a resource that we want to be able to hoard, to take advantage of, to maximize, um, to make our lives more convenient. 
um, I mean, just thinking about the the phrases that we use, right? The um, the the you know the the business theories that we put forward. It's all about making time uh, or maximizing time to our advantage, um, and you know, it, it's it's radically transformed also our way of how we conceive of our very existences, because because we think time is quantifiable. Um, it's kind of put at a distance our own mortality. It's kind of set death aside. Uh, and so on the one hand, right, what we have gained with modern conceptions of time is that because we can parcel out a life, right, into stages, uh, we work tirelessly to extend life, to better life, to, to make life more enjoyable. But by this, this kind of newfound focus on life itself, we have forgotten you know, kind of the inescapability of death, uh, which I think wisdom traditions, religious traditions have always um, strove to kind of make sense of. And so while we become more efficient at being um, productive, uh, being effective in how we go about our, our daily lives and in our careers and what have you, uh, we've lost sight of higher meaning. We've lost sight of what comes after death, of how to deal with death um, and so forth. And that's where I think theology provides a type of solution, a corrective um, to our transition to post-domesticity. That theology essentially says one must come to grips with one's mortality, uh, that our time on this earth is limited, um, that that our creator, the, the almighty God, has greater plans for us, and that time is not necessarily ours to manipulate and to, um, to maximize, but belongs to God. That it, that it belongs to a, a higher order of existence that we've kind of lost track of. So in many ways, theology I see as, as you know, you could say it, it's kind of pumping the brakes, uh, putting, putting, uh, giving us a conscientious pause to our kind of uh, acceptance, our, our facile acceptance of modernity's, you know, quantification, commodification of time itself. Um, and so in that sense, I think theology uh, says, you know, a step away from the materiality, from 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 the uh, the the you know hyper technologization of of everyday existence, and think about what gives your life meaning. How does one achieve salvation? Uh, Reanchors us into perhaps a sacred past and looking forward towards an eschatological future. So I think theology serves as a reframing of just how to deal with all of this. And I'll admit, even though. Um, Perhaps our current post-domestic modern conception of time uh, has its disadvantages. It's also inescapable. It's a reality that we cannot shake. It's something that's going to be with us. And nevertheless, I don't think it's irreconcilable with religiosity, with, with theology. Thank you, Martin. So now I'd like to talk about tradition, you know, that perennially relevant yet oftentimes elusive concept. Your chapter on the subject cites numerous uh, modern thinkers from Waldman to McIntyre to Assad, and yet you argue that, quote, each of the preceding understandings is framed anthropocentrically. Tradition is cast fundamentally as a human affair. For the work of theology in particular, an intervention is in order. A theological conception of tradition then ought to account for both revelation, i.e. its message, instantiation, and historical unfolding, and what we, ha what we have made and continue to make of revelation, end quote. You aim to offer a theological reading of the tradition that preserves the crucial role of the divine in the unfolding of tradition while also critically accounting for our human role in the ongoing construction of it, end quote. And this is where you bring in the Kaaba, the sacred house, and Mecca as a symbol of tradition. 
Can you describe a little what this intervention all means and what implications it has for both the secular academic study of tradition as well as for the life of a believer? Right. So, um, you know, as, as you were just you just kind of uh, citing, one of my attempts in my chapter on tradition is really to try to provide an alternative theorization of it, one that isn't anthropocentric, right? Because when you look at, you know, the, the kind of secular uh, disciplines of inquiry like anthropology or whatnot, um, the perspective of the human kind of takes precedence. And yet, if you're going to be working in the field of theology, right? the divine must an account of the divine must be had and i think that's often lacking right so if you're trying to articulate a theological a religiously grounded a faith-informed view of what tradition is one must bring that back into the equation but rather than simply creating another theory another formula um in which uh, it is rationally articulated i wanted to do something different something that is in line with the kind of the overarching project of the book um, it's actually to imagine a different mode of understanding of conceptualization and so rather than you know giving a theory i actually partake in storytelling and the life of the kaaba becomes the means by which i try to articulate that alternative vision right um, and the reason i find the kaaba a powerful metaphor for tradition is because it has such um, iconic value within Muslim religious perspectives. This is something that all Muslims turn to in terms of prayer. It has this instant recognizability. Uh, it is an anchor point. It has a gravity that Muslims recognize. And yet when you look at the Kaaba itself, it seems, at least in my opinion, um, to encapsulate both elements of the human and the divine, um, elements of revelation, because the Kaaba in its uh, understood sacred history is from God or appointed by God. And it's, and it's you know, referenced in scripture, it's referenced in the sacred past. And yet at the same time, the Kaaba is a thing, an object of this earth by which humans have tended to over the centuries. And I see this as a great parallel or a metaphor for tradition itself. Tradition is anchored in revelation. It emerges out of it. Um, it tradition is overseen by the divine, if you're accepting a theological worldview. And yet tradition is constantly in flux and change and transformation. It is constantly adapting um, and shifting with, the, with the, the care or the neglect of the people of that time. And so by, you know, drawing this parallel between the Kaaba and tradition, I'm hoping that this imparts through storytelling, through kind of figuration, um, a different way of, of conceiving tradition as a whole, right? That this, that the prevailing theories of tradition um, that are based out of kind of more secular disciplines, while they are valuable and they have their purpose, if one is operating from a position of theology, there are certainly other ways for us to approach the topic. And I hope I provided one. So I'd like to take our conversation to another prominent theme of the book, and that is the imagination, or as you describe it, the, quote, Muslim imaginative faculty. How is this faculty different from the rational faculty, which relies on reason or the intellect? And where does it map on the new theological calculus you propose? Does it boil down to, let's say, the difference between understanding versus seeing as we know it in the classical tradition? Is it more of an individual or a social phenomenon? And how is it constructed? Um, so part of my purpose of introducing the imagination, right, is to provide a, in a sense, partner to rationality. I think rationality um, has long occupied a place of prominence within classical conceptions of theology. The thing is, and this is what I think numerous scholars have been trying to point out uh, recently, is that there are various forms of rationality, different regimes of sense surrounding it, that 
uh, the nature of rationality will vary depending upon the cultural context, the social expectations, um, the particular formation that an individual undergoes. All of that results in uh, particular forms, regimes of rationality. Uh, and so we need to recognize that there is not a universal reason by which we all abide. Likewise, I think imagination has that same type of variation. And yet, you know, the imagination as a resource, as something that is ingrained within our humanness, um, something that we can draw upon for the work of faith, for the work of theology, um, has perhaps been not underutilized, but un under-recognized, right? Uh, I think within the Sufi tradition, the imagination has been implemented in, in very productive ways. And I think if you look at the Islamic tradition as a whole, you'll find the imagination being manifest and being applied in a whole host of different places. And so rather than, than trying to uh, say that it is a matter of, of imagination versus reason, I think the, the, the objective is to place these two into conversation, that these are partners in terms of how we approach uh, matters of faith. Um, and, and just as rationality has its limits, I also think the imagination has its limits as well, right? The imagination takes us on dangerous flights of fancy, uh, yet at the same time, it can open up new doors of thinking, right? Uh, shed light on possibilities that were un inconceivable before, right? Sometimes it takes um, a moment of reflection upon the absurd to actually come across uh, a new avenue that could lead to a reconciliation or a solution of some sort. So bringing our discussion back to the concept of time, I wanted to speak briefly about your theory of revelation. You write that revelation or wahi in Arabic can be said to quote-unquote domesticate time as it enters into the human and temporal plane of our world. Can you expand on, can you expand on this point just a little bit? Sure. Um, in many ways, my, my treatment of revelation was an attempt to kind of recenter the significance of it. In many ways, I feel that revelation um, has been re relegated or domesticated, compartmentalized um, in our modern-day understanding of things. And my treatment of revelation was an attempt to show that revelation is something that is very much alive and powerful uh, within our everyday existences. It's not something of the past, right? That revelation doesn't exist only uh, during the, the formation of the religion of Islam and the, and the and the descent of the Qur'an, that revelation is something that is very much vibrant and eternal and impactful uh, on the lives of everyday believers, on the lives of everyday humans. And so when I came to time, you know, I'm revisiting my treatment in the earlier chapter, looking at domesticity and post-domesticity about modernity, that when I'm looking at revelation, I see revelation as really um, something that radically transforms time for human beings that we may under we may have you know certain understandings of time that are based upon nature based upon our ability to commodify and quantify it and yet um, we find in various references with within uh, Muslim sources to God having ultimate control over time that time itself is something that God creates that that time is, is is temporality and that God exists beyond it, that he is eternal. Um, and that ultimately Islam is trying to direct us not to um, a, a perfect time or perfection of time, but rather to an existence that exceeds beyond uh, temporality, right? And to eternality. Um, and and this will be visited once again later in the book, right? Because I think time is something that, that requires us to repeatedly kind of 
uh, bring some introspection. But that domestication of time is simply to say that while time may seem like a powerful force within our lives, and it has significance, um, ultimately it's God, right? This transcendent power from the Muslim perspective that predominates, that even time itself is subject to uh, the forces of revelation um, and, and to the will of God. Let's talk about the concept of faith. You draw from two prominent individuals separated by roughly eight centuries to discuss the topic. The first is the medieval theologian Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, uh, and the second is the modern activist and preacher Malcolm X. Um, for our listeners who may not be familiar with either one or both of their transformation stories, can you briefly tell us how you draw from them and then share a bit about what connection these two individuals have in your conceptualization of faith? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, it was very deliberate. I was very deliberate in choosing these two particular figures. Um, I think Abu Hamid al-Ghazali is, is a seminal figure within the Islamic tradition, within Islamic history. Um, he has a certain recognizability uh, with many Muslim audiences. In some ways, uh, al-Ghazali is is akin to or perhaps at the same level as a figure like Augustine for the Christian tradition. Um, and part of his own narrative, what he writes in um, a semi-autobiographical treatise, is his own struggles of faith. That despite his, his impressive learning, despite his dedication, his erudition, um, the, the, you know, achieving kind of the peak career that one could achieve as a religious scholar, Ghazali suffers from skepticism, from doubt. Um, that he has to kind of really wrestle with, with, with this to the point it has, that it has this debilitating effect. He has to abandon his career and seek out spiritual guidance. Um, and so I wanted to, to foreground that to say that, you know, even the best of us um, have questions about faith. And yet my second move, the way that I bookend this particular treatment of, of faith in, in the work is to then turn to someone much more recent, someone that we often think of, but don't perhaps conceive of as a necessarily uh, uh, kind of classic figure, uh, Malcolm X. He may be a household name, but how often do Muslims envision Malcolm as a religious figure, as a, as a theological resource? And yet, as you read his life, you know, one can read many different streams, but I wanted to trace out the way that faith figures into his particular struggle. And he goes from a position of, of, of a youth um, uh, mired in trouble and vices and crime, which eventually lands him into jail, um, to these gradual stages of new faith discovery, right? That he joins the nations of Islam, that he, he, he has this awakening to the religious and, and oh, sorry, awakening to the racial realities of, of, of the country of the United States. Um, and then eventually, right, he, he he comes to this uh, discovery of, of of the Islam connected to, to the Kaaba, to the Prophet Muhammad and what have you. Um, and by tracing out that life, I also wanted to show that, you know, when we think about struggles of faith, uh, when you set Malcolm next to Ghazali, uh, these struggles take on many different forms, that the nature of faith itself is understood radically different from these two iconic figures. And yet these are figures that are part of our community, out of part of our tradition. Um, and so I wanted to, to highlight, right, the, the humanness, the, 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 the commonness of, of having questions um, about one's faith, uh, the struggle of the, of the faithful and the faith-seeking, and to also show at the same time that how we come to grips with the question of faith changes. That what Ghazali is dealing with is so fundamentally different from what Malcolm X is dealing with. That oftentimes the time period in which we are in, the circumstances with which we are faced, the cultures in which we are raised um, can, can significantly change what it means 
to do theology, what it means to answer God, what it means um, to foster faith. In your last chapter, called Theology in Prostration, you talk about what the act of prostration means theologically, and you cite one of my favorite philosophers, Muhammad Iqbal, who says that, quote, we cannot ignore the important consideration that the posture of the body is a real factor in determining the attitude of the mind, end quote. And also that, quote, the spirit of all true prayer is social. So my question is, how is the act of prostration connected to theology, and how does this theology manifest in itself in the world, let's say, in our pursuit of justice and equality? So, I mean, this gets back to an earlier point I raised, which, which I think is worth expanding on, right? That theology is not purely a mental exercise. It's not just about um, a, a statement of faith. It's not just um, a recollection of the convictions that we are supposed to hold uh, to be true. That theology is something that is holistic, that it embodies um, all of who we are as human beings. That yes, you know, there's a mental component to who we are, but we also were created with these physical, corporeal, uh, bodies, and that when we think about faith, it's not just about what we choose or what we um, state that we believe, but it's something that becomes manifest in how we live. Right? That you could say that you are a faithful believer, but if you go about your daily life committing all sorts of abuses, um, being exploitative, um, there's a there's a problem here. Right? That faith should be seen as something that is not just um, a mental exercise, but something that exudes. Uh, in our behavior uh, that is that is uh, identifiable and how we conduct ourselves in our physical in our physicality right in our embodiedness and so taking that to the next level then one must also be very kind of critical of what one does in the world uh, that yes theology the end goal of it the 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 theology of it is salvation of returning to God of having a goodly hereafter and yet in order to achieve that one must, live in this world. And as one lives in this world, um, our conduct, our, our embodiment, our, our, our performance of what it means to be Muslim ought to have larger ramifications. And so all the rituals, all the acts of devotion that are asked of us, I would argue, are not purely um, singly focused on that that um, vertical access of God and, and the human being, but rather also has a horizontal dimension that there's always ways of looking at these particular rituals and acts as having impact on the world around us. And in fact, that they should not be separated, right? That the life of faith is not a private matter that we can compartmentalize, but something that is very much alive and integrated um, with the community in which we live in and the larger world in which we abide. And hence, uh, I would say that um, theology must be also committed to righteousness, right? That faith and righteousness are always stated as, as, as being going hand in hand. You see it exuded in the lives of the prophets. You see it exuded, um, you know, exemplified uh, by the, the figures of our, of our revered past, our tradition. And it's something that we should expect uh, with each and every one of us or strive to do in our response to God. Well, you've, you've given us a lot to chew on, Martin. And uh, as a final treat for our listeners... Um, would you able be able to share with us what you're currently working on and what we can look forward to you, uh, what we could look forward to from you in the future? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, well, I mean, I would say that modern Muslim theology was my attempt to start a conversation, to have people begin to think about theology as an endeavor, as an activity, as, as a practice. Um, now, having said what I've said, kind of laid out major concepts and proposed different ways at looking at things when it comes to theology, I wanted to write a work, and this is what I'm working on now, um, to undertake a project 
that addressed some of the concerns that contemporary Muslim communities are facing today. And so what I'm working on is um, a work that tries to provide theological resources for Muslims in trying to grapple with kind of what I see as two global dilemmas, crises uh, that are at hand. One is, of course, um, global migration, right? Mass displacement, the fact that we have an ongoing uh, refugee crisis, um, that migration is becoming commonplace, dislocation, um, that there is a rootlessness that is pervasive, if not growing within the world. And so you have, on the one hand, you know, the question of refugees, kind of broadly speaking. But then on the other hand, there's also particular structures within society that we're still grappling with. And I think the one about modern race is the one that needs kind of attention. Like, as, as Muslims, do we have a, a basic literacy when it comes to matters of race and how to deal with them? And so I'm trying to draw upon the Islamic tradition to provide uh, theological touchstones, uh, frameworks for us to think about how um, the question of refugees, the question of race are interconnected and how we can effectively respond to them, right? Because Muslims are both victims and perpetrators uh, of these two kind of dilemmas in, in their own ways. Uh, and so I'm, I'm working towards um, essentially a new monograph that addresses this. And the key concept for me is that of the stranger. Um, the ghuraba, the strangers that are talked about within prophetic sayings. Uh, what does this category offer us um, that is productive, that can move us forward towards um, better understanding how to grapple with the twin crises of uh, mass displacement and structural racism? Okay, that sounds really, really exciting. And I hope uh, you would join us once more in the future once that monograph is out. I would love to uh, conduct that interview with you. Thank you so much, Martin, uh, for joining us today. Um, it was a pleasure and an honor. Um, folks, Modern Muslim Theology, Engaging God and the World with Faith and Imagination. Get yourselves a copy of the book as soon as you can. Thank you, Martin. Thank you. Thank you.